Well, it's certainly good to see each of you this morning, and it's my privilege to welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. I'd first like to welcome our guest. I'm sure we have many guests with us this morning on account of our graduate recognition. We're always delighted to have visitors with us, and we hope that we can uh, make your visit as meaningful as can be. If you have any questions that are not answered by the end of our service, please find one of us and we'll see if we can help you in any way we can. But again, good to have you. And uh, welcome to everyone else, our regulars, be it by way of live stream or in this room. Uh, As David has already said, this is about as close as it used to look as I can remember, which is great, and we, we praise the Lord for it. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. We've got a lot to do in this service, so I thought the quicker we get to it, uh, the quicker we'll be out of here, which is always a lovely compliment to give a pastor, (laughs) because usually it goes the other way. But we're going to be reading in verse 10 of the 10th. Verse 10 of the first chapter of Esther, and that's a small book. It's right after Nehemiah, and uh, it's before Job, but it's easy to flip over. And today, if there were an emphasis or a spotlight, um, that would be on these graduates seated on the front row, and that's by virtue of their recent or pending graduation uh, from high school. And it's not so much uh, the achievement or should I say the uh, passing of the final exams uh, that we make such a big deal about in our culture. Uh, Because in America it's still quite normal and expected that all young people pass at least 12 grades. It's the transition that we really talk about. This, this is a, a step, maybe not today, but in the coming weeks and months, where you'll enter a, a larger area of independence and responsibility. Things will change, and a lot more will be on your shoulders than has ever been before. That's really what we think about and contemplate when we consider graduation. And then there's all those choices you need to make. Go to college, go to university, learn a trade, uh, go right into the workforce, join the military. Uh, All of these choices are basically yours uh, within the realm of options that you have available to you. Um, I can remember going through some of this. I, I, I would have longed for someone else to make some of these decisions for me. I didn't feel qualified to direct the rest of my life with only 12 years of school under my belt. Um, and then there's the, 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 the unsaid thing that is more felt than anything else. If you're anything like I was, and this was a long time ago, you probably feel like everybody's watching and everybody's asking, so what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? All those things. It, 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 it kind of comes down as, as crunch time, you, you feel. So I thought maybe I'd share with you, there's a little bit of, of, of that on a guy who delivers a speech or a message or a sermon on an occasion where there's extra attention and extra spotlights. Um, it's kind of some unsaid expectation that Whoever the commencement speaker is, or the valedictorian, or the pastor on the Sunday around this time of year to pull a rabbit out of his hat. Tell us something we haven't heard before that will inspire these young graduates to greatness. And I'm usually on the inside, my smart aleck self, saying that's not particularly my job. And really... In this context, I kind of understand that, and I get it, because I have to remind myself this as well. Because we are humans, we want to instinctively think that this book right here was written for us to hear what we want to hear, when actually it was the opposite. God wrote this book, the Bible, 
for us to hear what he wants us to hear. So really the task this morning is to hear from the Lord, not to hear from me or any other human being, and to hear that from Scripture. So then there's still the trick. Okay, where do we go to the Bible to find something that graduates need? And again, my smart aleck self says, you'll find it right where you're studying if you just study one verse after the next and do it long enough. So Esther's what we started last week, and Esther's where we'll study today. But here's, here's what I think is, is great. You might remember uh, Mark Talbert a few weeks ago saying, sometimes God is good. He just gives you an extra portion of what you need. But here we're contemplating the idea of young folks taking a step into independence and responsibility. And over the coming weeks and months, whether you like the job or not, you're going to need to demonstrate in a number of realms your capacity to stand on your own two feet. Uh, you'll need to show your employer that you can be responsible, that you can show up on time, that you can return calls, return texts, follow directions, blah, blah, blah. Same with the school. And it's even worse at college because they really don't care if you don't show up. They just give you an F and you'll, you'll see it posted or emailed to you. They won't even call you to tell you this isn't working. It's a whole new realm. But as far as your church goes and your faith and this book and a day in God's house, you're going to be required to demonstrate that you can stand on your own two feet, spiritually speaking. And then we come along with this story in the book of Esther, which displays precisely the same thing in approximately the same type of environment. An environment where the whole world could care less about your Jesus, your church, your church family, or the big Bible we're going to give to you later. That's quite a task. You'll need some help. You can't do it on your own. And if the good Lord doesn't move within you, it won't happen at all. So, let's read this text. And you might think as we're reading it, what in the world does this have to do with what you just said? Hang on. Verse 10, Esther chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in his kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus? delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said to the princes of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your love and watch care over us, especially these graduates. Lord, speak to us from this text. May we have ears to hear, and we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, without going into too much detail as to what was covered in the first nine verses, which we studied last week, Esther sits in the position of the twelfth book of history in the Bible. you got the first five books, which are the law, and then the next twelve have to do with its history, telling the story of the Israel's people from when they entered the promised land to when it blew all to pieces. And then the last three of those deal with the return of some of the exiled scattered Jews back to Jerusalem. Esther deals with the people who never returned. They're still in Persia. They've set up shop. They're living there. And this is where we begin reading. Uh, The first nine verses basically describing an opulent party of six months duration and a seven-day feast afterward for the point of showing the whole world how much Xerxes was the man. That's the first nine verses and serve as a backdrop against which to look at Esther. Little old Esther, nobody knows, a Hebrew girl with a Persian name. So you look at the high and mighty, and against that you see the small and lowly. She serves or lives under the empirical rule of the most powerful man in the world, who is known by the way he carries himself, excessive, indulgent, master of showmanship, cruel, hateful, without check or balance. No one tells him what to do except for the laws that were previous to him. In which case, if he doesn't like it, he'll make up a new one that negates it. His empire, we learned last week, is inescapable, invincible, materialistic, desirable. Those were the points of the message. The world at that point had seen nothing like it. But we concluded with another backdrop. If we're looking at Esther against the backdrop of Xerxes, the high and mighty, we look at all that behind the backdrop or against the backdrop of the king, and king of kings and lord of lords who created everything in Genesis 1.1. This is the kingdom of heaven, the throne room of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a bigger God and there's a higher authority. That was last week. So let me tell you where we're going to end today. We ended last week with God has a better kingdom than Xerxes. We're going to end today with Jesus is a better king will be contrasting this man and his treatment of his women with Jesus and his treatment of his bride. So, we've read the text, and after having studied last week with this big party where everything was on display, and it's quite extensive, the list that goes on, like all other belongings of Xerxes, up until now, he seems to have forgotten his prize possession, his trophy queen. And her refusal to enter the king's presence that we just read is basically about as bold of a move as Esther's walking into his presence without permission. Both of them were gutsy moves and could have cost them their lives. But what we're meant to look at here, the the spectacle of the passage we just read, is the upsetting of this self-congratulatory six months and one week worth of look at me. And one woman says, no. And the whole thing implodes. Now, we're meant to think that that's great. Or our mouth drops. Uh, 
Should we cheer? Should we boo? We'll look at that in a few minutes. But disrupting of the pathetic self-congratulation of the festivities and becomes the catalyst for the entire series of events that will constitute the rest of the book. For Esther to come in, Vashti has to be out. And this is the setup. Two themes emerge here. We'll look at them in slightly different terms from here on out. But basically, the first question is, who, where's the authority? Who's in charge here? It looks as if that's Xerxes. But then the second, as far as all these things panning out, who's really controlling things? Because obviously, Xerxes doesn't have control of at least one woman. Resistance is possible, though it was quite fruitless. So authority and control... This man may have authority, but he doesn't have control. Everything in Persia belonged to the king. Everything was for the king. You couldn't just decide to disobey the king, but Vashti did. That's the conflict. And even though she's the queen, it doesn't mean that this, the, the penalty will be any less severe. And what we're going to see, even as the story goes on in the, the coming weeks... There's going to be a massive discrepancy between what the king thinks he's controlling and what's actually happening. And that's the, the point of the story, really. The unseen God. It's God working in the background. They're more than coincidences. These uh, dramatic reversals are not by chance. God is working for the good of his people while Xerxes thinks he's in control. So, so far, and then we'll give you a couple of points here. A king may very well rule 127 provinces from, uh, what was it, India to the Sudan. Even filthy riches. But as far as his control, he has his limits. So let's add another characteristic to the empire of the world. That's what we called this. And last week, the way we, we put it was, there's always an empire of the world. There's one now. This was the biggest yet. But it's going to be taken over by Greece. Greece is going to be uh, conquered by Rome. And then you got the British Empire. There's always an empire of the world. And it's always in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. That's just the world we live in. But all of these kingdoms seem to have the same things in common. It's scary how close it is. We want to think this is way back in the long ago and far away. This is... This is as good today as it was then. The heart is still deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Xerxes couldn't know it and you can't know it. And it's only the grace of God that will change that picture. So let's add one more. It was inescapable. It was invincible. It was desirous. It was materialistic. Today, the empire of the world from chapters or verse 10 on through 22, there'd be two of these points. Number one is the empire of the world is dangerous and arbitrary. And those two are kind of linked together. Let me explain to you why this empire at this point under this king with these people is dangerous and it's arbitrary. Look at verse 10 again. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I'm not going to read those names again, seven eunuchs. Go get the queen. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused. At this, the king became enraged. His anger burned within him. So what you've got here from the ancient languages, for the king's heart to be merry with wine may just mean cheerful. It's likely what it means in Ruth 3. Why is that? Because we know Boaz. He was a, an honorable man with a reputation of care and compassion and character. What about Xerxes? You think he's just cheerful? No, I think after the six-month-long party and the week-long drinking feast where they were told, you drink as much as you want. That's a law. We read it last week. I think it's safe to say, though we're arguing from silence, that he's had at least one too many. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? We see by his actions. Now, you've got the most powerful man in the world drunk publicly. Is that cool? 
Is that a threat to national security? Is that a indication that he's likely to impugn his reputation? Oh yeah. This is a perfect cocktail for a disaster. So this is incredibly frightful. The whole empire is in danger because of one man, because all the power's in his hands, and he's out of control. The empire of the world. Let's take some notes here. The empire of the world is not a place where we should expect consistency or even justice in all points. Why? Because it's a place where arbitrary power is commonplace. Arbitrary means based on personal whim rather than wisdom and sound judgment. Are wisdom and sound judgment present here? Or is the king is mad because he's drunk and he's been embarrassed by his trophy queen, so what's he going to do? He's going to make a law that affects every last person in their kingdom. All the women are going to suffer because of his foolishness. Now that's on a national level. We'll talk about the queen. Herodotus, that's a historian, tells us that Xerxes was a notorious womanizer. And really the record further than that is not fit for public consumption, especially in a church. So it's no surprise that after he'd shown his empire everything he owned, and now that he's good and liquored up, he's going to show off his plaything, basically. That she has a crown doesn't mean anything. She's there for his enjoyment. And the purpose to bring her out and show the world her beauty is to say that mine's better than yours. That's, that, that's the short of it. This is how the empire works. We'll come back to this. But the point is made. It's dangerous. Um, and it's arbitrary. Let me give you another point. This is the second We may be slightly getting ahead of ourselves, but some of them kind of come together. And this, I think, is the key to the passage. And I'll have to pull that out because on the surface, this really doesn't look like it would be the key to understanding the passage or the key to how this should fit you as graduates today. But number two, the empire of the world is a joke. Part of the way this is written in Hebrew literature this is satire at points to where we look at this man who thinks he's in such control and his queen makes a laughing stock of him and rather than just saying, all right, you got me, I'm sorry. He changes the rules for the whole world to save face because he can and because he's an idiot. It's supposed to look silly. Though it's dangerous, it's supposed to look silly. The king, again, who rules 127 provinces from India to Sudan, receives one refusal from his queen, and he's totally out of control. He's enraged. He's burning with anger. So how many of you would think that if anyone's in danger, it would be Vashti? She's the one in, in the most trouble. And at this point, we might like to say we enjoy the, the, the tension of the conflict here, we want to stand in a vigorous applause in honor of this woman who stood up to men behaving badly. That's our instinct, her courage, her dignity. But we talked about this last week. Before we do that, we need to check the surrounding verses and listen to the storyteller to make sure that he's not giving us any signals as to whether we should or we shouldn't. good example of this would be when David in Bathsheba uh, is known. And at the end of the chapter, and this that David had done displeased the Lord. Clear moral marker from the storyteller. This is wrong. In this case, that's not the point that's being made. We have no answers. So what do we do? We move on. The point must lie somewhere else. Then that being the moral message the book was written to tell. Uh, verse 13, king said to his wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, 
toward all those who were versed in the law and the judgment. Again, I won't read those names. I did like Bigtha, though. He had to have been a bodyguard, don't you think? Bigtha. Or maybe some East Coast rap recording artist. I don't know. <laughs> the king, for the first but not the last time in this story, doesn't know what to do. He's mad, but he doesn't know what to do about it. Because he doesn't have any character or wisdom from which to make decisions. The man next to him, being the seven princes of Persian media, have this idea. And uh, really has everything to do with the law. According to the law, what should we do? So let's make some more notes. The empire of the world has the appearance of legality. We have laws. We'll do this fairly. We'll... Uh, legislate, get Congress together, we'll debate, we'll do what's right by you. We promised that when you voted for us, right? Don't be that naive. Yes, there were good kings in Israel's history, but they were clearly men of God who served under the authority of the written word. But to have lost people, all moral people, at worst immoral people, with the same fractured heart that we have because of our sin nature it may have the appearance of legality but pretty much what these men want is what these men get that's the way it's going to work uh, you'll always have ways where you can say I wasn't treated fairly you could say that in government as a citizen you can say that as an employee you could say that as a child in your house Regardless of whether it's true or it's not, we, we want to feel that way. But in this case, king's advisors basically say, Look, king, this just isn't your problem. It's Persia's problem. And we're going to write a law that affects all of Persia. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? It's not just his problem, it's Persia's problem. And the idea behind this legislation, what the queen has done, if it gets out, Women disobeying their husbands will go viral and we'll all be in trouble. It says nothing as to whether or not these men are respectable and deserving of respect. They would never say such a thing like that. So, verse 19, If it please the king, let the royal order go out from him, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, listen, so that it may not be repealed. You can never repeal a law of the Medes and Persians. Here it is, first line, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. That's meant to be funny. What, what, did she, what were her last words? I don't want to be anywhere near him. And now it's a law that she doesn't have to be anywhere near him. Now, it looks funny on the surface there. It's actually sad because she's still the king's queen she's not put to death she basically lives in prison no one else can have her or any of the other 400 that will be chosen they only come when he calls them and they can be given to no one else uh, human injustice uh, Xerxes and the way he treated women should be part of the dictionary's definition it's, it's that egregious but they make this law in the last. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. There, that should fix it. It's really sad, though, because they're worried that the rumor will get out that the emperor has no clothes, that the man's not respectable, and his wife thinks he's a joke. So then they put it all in print and hand deliver it to everybody in the kingdom. And you know when they read it, they shut the door and they laugh their heads off. So, by the end of the chapter, it's where we are now, we've learned that the empire of the world is not only inescapable, it's so far and large, you'll never, ever escape the empire of the world. You're stuck in it. We've also learned that it is utterly materialistic. Duh. We no commentary needed. It's visually impressive. It has its toys, its style. It's trinkets, desperately desirable, 
Well, if you're not in with it, then you're out. Nobody wants to be out. We learned that in the sandbox. But we learned today that it's not all what it's cracked up to be. In addition to these things, it's dangerous. There's nothing funny about that. It's arbitrary. There's nothing funny about that. But that adds up to absurdity. And sometimes the only appropriate response to that is to laugh from a position of eternal security that they know not of. And that's the point that I want to work on. We switch over to the wasness. All this was uh, Persia. Let's talk about the isness right here today. Graduate recognition Sunday in June 2021. This is the same world that we live in. Again, we don't need to think that this is just bible talk. It's the same way today. We too live in a world which the levers of power are controlled by the hands of incompetent men who choose arbitrarily to do things as they see fit. And we already talked about how that could be in your home or at your work. It's part of living in the world. But to live under the empire of the world, which, again, we have no choice, what are we supposed to do? Well, Esther tells us, we're going to try to apply this to here and now, that we should not take the power and glory and even riches too seriously. And when I say it should be funny or a joke, that's basically what I mean. That's the serious way to say this is a joke is to say we shouldn't take it so seriously. That's really the epitome of the best jokes, isn't it? I mean, what's more funny than somebody who takes themselves way too serious? Maybe your sense of humor is different than mine, but I think that's the best. What just popped into my mind was something I saw on the beach on vacation, but I'll leave that to myself. (laughs) But this guy had way too much opinion of himself. And I was not the only person on the beach laughing at him. (laughs) This book tells us to look at all that stuff Almost like Vashti looked at it. No, this is a joke. You've gone too far. I'm not for that. I'm not here for you to do that with me. Sometimes that's the most appropriate reaction. This whole world takes itself too seriously in one way or another. You know that. You live here. You watch TV. You shop. We've all got a problem with taking ourselves way too seriously. But it doesn't mean that the world doesn't expect any less. They expect us to take them seriously. The White House expects us to take it seriously. No matter who's there. No matter what goofy stuff is going on that we laugh at. Boy, don't they work hard to make sure no one laughs. Because this is serious. This is your government. I'm in charge. I'm El Capitano. So where we live... Facebook could not have existed. It wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Zuckerberg would not be a billionaire and we would not know his name if most people on the planet thought that other people cared what color socks they were wearing. (laughs) Right. Snapchat, all of them, they're the same. It's just different people use them at different times for different reasons. But the whole idea is... Other people will like this. They'll want to see this. They'll respond to this. They'll like this. They'll share this. Because it's good stuff. Because I'm doing it. My way. And it's good stuff. But that's where we live. I've said that how many times now? We live in a world that considers the car you drive to be an extension of who you are. Or they wouldn't hire Matthew McConaughey to drive around those Lincolns and talk to himself. (laughs) As if that's the end all be all. 
Graduates, we live in a world where people are more impressed with where you go to school than what you learn when you get there. And that's unfortunate. That's foolish. That should be laughable. But it's true. And there's not a lot we can do about it. Let me see if I can take it down one more notch. You know, you, you, you are careful how you take things down and message. You can put it on the lower shelf, but sometimes it's not the best cause. And any good message should get a little close to home, shouldn't it? And I'll use myself as uh, the stooge to uh, make sure that no one goes home thinking that I was making fun of anyone in particular. But there's a lot of rigmarole to these past few weeks. You probably got some stuff next week. You've had some stuff, dinners, parties, pictures. I've got all that stuff too. Now some could say, you can't talk about this preacher. You were homeschooled. I was. And I didn't have a cap and gown for high school. I had one for Liberty and Southeastern, but not for high school. But I did go to a prom, and there were pictures. Now, the memory I have of that evening, those weeks, and certainly those pictures, the thoughts coming to mind are not one of exquisite style or mesmerizing room-filled attention of coolness or whatever. They're funny. The pictures are a joke. I looked ridiculous. <laughs> and what's more ridiculous is I thought I looked great. <laughs> and then there's wedding pictures, and those cost a lot more, and they're looked at probably less. But there's a rule in a book somewhere that says you have to do it. We only get those out to show people how goofy we looked. You're laughing because I think this is more universal than just Mooneyham. But think about that. All the, the, the rigmarole and, and, and the, the pictures and what they cost and the schedules. Trying to get everywhere you're supposed to on time and in a good mood on top of that. Are we taking ourselves too seriously? Will it really matter later other than just a joke? Could it be possible that we risk feeding the very thing the Lord will have to beat out of us and that is that we're more important than He is or everyone else? That's something we'll watch for the rest of our lives. From the oldest to the youngest in here, it's still an issue. So... It was taught to me long ago that in this empire of the world, there's a certain currency where things are traded. And taking oneself seriously has a lot to do with the way the real system in the empire of the world works and how harmful it can be to you should you decide to take yourself too seriously. There's basically three coins. There's more we could could make it more complex but it doesn't need to be the first would be the gold coin of beauty if by chance and really this is something that the Lord would give you right you can't help what your face looks like right but should you be born with uh, an aesthetically pleasing appearance certain doors are open to you that are closed to others whether you like that or not You'll have an easier time, especially in high school. You'll get hired quicker. You may not stay as employed as long, but you'll get hired quicker. The other coin, there's three. The second is the gold coin of athleticism. If you can run or shoot or hit or carry better than the average... You're useful to the kingdom of the world, the empire of the world. You can entertain while others look and see what you have that they don't. Doors will be open to you that are closed to the others. Now, both of those are fleeting. By the time you get 40, even if you're the best, that's it for you. Professionally, 
about the time those looks start to need medical attention. <laughs> and then there's the third, which might be the most longest lasting of the three, but the gold coin of academics. You're also valuable to the empire of the world. You set up the businesses. You figure out the products, research, development, and information technology. There's scholarships for all three of those things in most schools. But without those three coins, of what worth are you to the empire of the world? They hope you'll get a job and spend your money as they exploit the other three and get rich while doing it. That's the way the empire works. The empire of the world cares nothing for your personality, nothing for your heart, and nothing for your soul. And the whole world revolves around people taking themselves so seriously that they have a chance to be Vashti or Esther or an athlete or a software Mongol. But most of the time we don't. That's just the way it works. So the point of this, and I'll tell you why it's the point and why it's important, is to laugh at those who are lives are wasted in pursuit of so many worthless goals. I heard it put this way. I thought it was great. Learn to laugh at those who spend money they don't have to buy stuff they don't need to look like others they never will to impress people they don't even like. That should be something that we would giggle at in a sad type of a way because we know that's just a, a, a dead game to start with. And then another person put it this way. It stuck with me. I wrote it down, and I'll, I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, it has the word idiot in it, so I won't say it as if it comes from me. Please save the planet from one more idiot who thinks the earth revolves around them, and you'll make this world a better place. You'll have a better go at it. And people will know you for who you are rather than for what you think you should be. The whole point of this book, Esther, is the unseen God. He's behind the scenes. You can't see him. All of the events we've seen so far, Xerxes' big parties, Vashti's saying no, on one level entirely explainable as normal human behavior. It's just a weird story with no miraculous component at all. God's not tied into this at all. It would seem that's not the case. We learned last week, we'll see it again and again, there's a higher king than Xerxes, and ultimately the God of the universe will have his way in the world he created. Here's the turn in the message. Put this on yourself. If we were to just ask a big fat, so what? If, and it's a big if, the empire of the world is all that there is, if there's no such thing as God, if we're just a bunch of sad saps who believe this book but it's not really true and and all there is is the empire of the world then you should take yourself as seriously as you possibly can because that's the only way you'll have any happiness in this world if you grab what you can get get noticed take charge climb the ladder above all else look out for yourself it's just evolution right survival of the fittest but if that's wrong and this is right the bible and the kingdom of heaven is actually over the empire of the world, then everything changes. And to surely miss the kingdom of heaven would be to throw all your eggs in the basket of the empire of the world. That's the sure way to miss the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is better than the empire of the world. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is because Jesus is a better king. I told you that's where we'd end. You already know the king, Jesus, from John's gospel we've been studying and from the New Testament. And you know what the kings of the empire of the world want from you. What do you suppose that the empire of the world, its king, would want from you? Only what pleasures himself. 
and that's it. You could say the same of the devil himself. But how does Jesus compare to what we've seen today and in the first nine verses from last week? King Jesus, too, is a ruler whose decrees cannot be challenged or repealed. His sovereignty governs all things, great and small. He must be obeyed or we will suffer grave consequences. He has that in common with the empire of the world and with Xerxes, right? However... His law is actually beneficial for men and women, unlike the drunken meanderings of a man at the mercy of his shrewd counselors. God doesn't use people for his own purposes and pleasures as if they were disposable commodities. Rather, he graciously invites them into a loving relationship with himself. His kingdom grows and it does its work, not through the outwardly powerful and attractive, but rather in the hidden but in effective ways. Not in exchange of those gold coins we were talking about, but maybe spending, I don't know, a lifetime behind the scenes in a church teaching Sunday school class so that kids have the toolkit to make their own decisions for eternity rather than the moment when they find themselves on their own. When God summons His bride, listen to this, when God summons His bride to His banquet... He does so not to expose her to shame, but to lavish His grace and mercy on her, far from regarding her as beautiful and an object existing solely to feed His pride and pleasure. Jesus took one who was by nature completely unattractive and gave Himself for her, laying down His own life for the life of His people. I'd say that's a gaping opposite wouldn't you so the question and the formula here how do we live in this world that's so backwards looking for a world that is so perfect sometimes the best way is just to laugh it off now that empire may grind you into the purpose of greasing its tank treads with your person it might roll over you and destroy you. We don't know what the future holds. Many Christians have been gobbled up, it seems, by the evil of this world. But they can't kill us. And that's not the end. So sometimes, maybe, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like Vashti. You can tell me what to do. But you can't control my will. You don't have to be assimilated into the empire of the world. You don't have to sell yourself for gold coins. You don't have to take yourself too seriously. You, you don't have to play their game. You can give yourself to King Jesus, knowing the truth of his promises. Spend your time here on this earth doing your best to bring others with you. And live eternally, happily ever after. But you'll need to make that choice now. Because they're trying their best to make it for you the other way. Jesus doesn't force sinners to come unwillingly to his feast, but gently woos them and draws them to himself. Xerxes says you have to. Jesus says, I want you to. I guess it'd be a good time to ask the question, have you answered the invitation of the king to come before his presence? And what's strange is that to refuse the invitation of King Jesus carries the same punishment as to refuse the invitation of King Xerxes. You'll never get to be with him again. Banished and alone. So the last thing I have written on my page here is Jesus is a better king. Is he your king? And with that said, we've got some things to do. But before we do, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gift of your word. To look through its pages, old pages, old story, 
in time and space and see the work of your hands and contrast your character against our own. We see ourselves in Xerxes. If we were given what he had, we'd act the same way. We make up our own rules when we become powerful. Lord, we're blessed of you when we're humble. Make us more like you and less like ourselves, less like the world. I ask that you bless these graduates, that you would give them wisdom beyond their years, that you would give them self-control, that you would give them a resolve to have their gratification later, to think through their options, to make wise decisions, to find a wonderful mate who loves you more than they love them. But you'd give them strong parents with testimonies that point to you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't take themselves too seriously and all the imbalances that come with doing so. That they wouldn't learn too late having been self-absorbed that most of the best stuff in life has to do with others and giving rather than receiving. Lord, I pray that they find a place, if they're not here, to worship with others who love you and are serious about keeping one another accountable. And Lord, I pray that their witness will walk before them, that others will see you, they'll see a difference, they'll ask questions, that they can be born again as a result of your having changed these young people. Lord, thank you for a day like this to have a conversation like this. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.